Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, God, Our Light and Life, as we walk through 1 John. The name of this sermon is called, How Grace Makes Us Soft and Strong. And Pastor David will be preaching in 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Let's join Pastor David now. Uh, please do uh, meet me in that passage, 1 John chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning as we continue through 1 John. First John 5, I'll be reading and, and preaching from the English Standard Version, so if you're using a copy on your phone or your computer or wherever you are, if you have access to Scripture, First John 5, uh, 1 through 5, uh, reads this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let me pray before we continue. Father, we ask that these words from your word, Lord, would be a deep encouragement to us today, would be a deep comfort, would be a source of confidence, would be a word that softens and shapes our heart both for you and for others and strengthens us, Father, in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You have probably found that when you bump into mature believers, mature Christians who maybe have been walking with the Lord through many years, through ups and downs, through challenges, through seasons of joy and seasons of difficulty and rain, and when you bump into believers who have been matured and, and grown through those seasons, we, uh, maybe names and faces might come to mind, but have you noticed that oftentimes Mature people in their walk with Christ have a paradoxical mix of both meekness and strength, a kind of a humility and softness and tenderness and, uh, and empathy and sympathy ooze out of them, but at the same time, they're far from soft. There's a strength, there's a courage, there's a resolute standing on the rock kind of assurance that they have simultaneously. Sally and I certainly uh, won't forget, we're thinking about a couple from uh, the church we previously served at, an, an older couple who had walked with the Lord through many years through tremendous pain, tremendous difficulty over a long period of time. And every time we spoke with them, uh, there was just this overwhelming kindness and softness, but at the same time, a lion of courage existed in their heart. And that couple, and many more come to mind, the kind of couple that Sally and I sometimes say, man, we, we want to be like them when we grow up. We want to have that kind of gentleness, softness, tenderness, meekness. Yet at the same time, 
such a confidence in Christ that he through us is a lion. He through us is a solid rock. I want that for my life. We want that for our family. How do we get that? How do we get that heart that's both tender and courageous, both soft yet strong? 1 John 5 shows us how. And it starts by showing us that grace, grace, grace is what softens our heart, what melts our heart, both to God and to others. Grace produces that in the life of a believer. It softens us. It melts us both to God and to others. Look at just the first verse, 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In 1 John 5, as in elsewhere uh, in Scripture, provides a metaphor of salvation, metaphor of our relationship with God, that we are born of Him, 1 John 5 says. Elsewhere it talks about uh, being born of the Father or, or being children of God or by, uh, about being reborn, right? Spiritual rebirth, regeneration. And if there was an image that could not ooze and drip more of grace, it's the image of being born into the family of faith. Listen, uh, John also says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this idea of being born into the faith, as we all reflect on our own lives, which one of us chose when we were going to be born? Which one of us chose to which family we were going to be born? The metaphor is oozing with the idea that birth itself, the child has no control over that. It's something that is utterly received. It's something that uh, the child is, is in many ways passive through the process, and it is the work of the parent, God the Father, to spiritually rebirth us, his children. Do you see? It's oozing with grace that we're not born of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but it's all of God. That God regenerates us. The Spirit indwelling in regenerative power in our souls. He is the one, God the Spirit, who regenerates us and gives us new birth. We simply receive this by faith. And if we are passive receptors, receivers of God's grace, we've got to respond to it. We have to respond to His grace by faith. But if we are passive through that process, do you see... Grace softens us toward God. It softens us toward God. And it softens us to one another. Because if we are truly born of God, and it is His work, and new birth is of Him by the Spirit, we receive it by grace, then we stand before God truly and genuinely saying, not beating ourselves down, but truly and genuinely saying, I don't deserve you. I did nothing to earn this. I did nothing to achieve this. I did nothing to merit this. That salvation is not that we put our spiritual resume before God and He takes the top applicants. 
we are born of him. And if we all stand before God saying, I I deserve none of this, but you in your grace have so chosen and so desired to birth me again by grace through faith, and I'm a child of God. It's a gift. Everything is a gift, if that's true. Everything, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, right? So says James. It softens us toward God, and it softens us to one another. Because in the Christian family of faith. That's what we are, believers, a family of faith. We look to our left and to our right, and not in a condemning way of all. We say, you don't deserve him either. (laughs) None of us do. And if salvation was something that we earned by our effort or earned by our performance, then if we look to the left and to the right, then we're competitors, aren't we? We're competitors to God's grace, not companions, But do you see, grace melts that. It softens that. Grace takes a a heart, our broken, sinful hearts, and it kills any sense of entitlement toward God. Because if it was all up to us to kind of perform our way into heaven, then we'd be entitled, wouldn't we? We'd say, well, God, I earned this. I worked for this. You owe me. (laughs) Which one of you in, um, in your companies, the places where you work, when it's when it's payday, your, your paycheck comes through, does the whole team just burst out in tears and wonder and delight, oh my goodness, can you believe it? We got paid. No. You know what happens in your workplace? You look at it, eh, should be a little more. <sighs> Wish this was more frequent. <laughs> if we work to earn our salvation, we would stand before God and say, well, Wish your blessings were a little more. (laughs) Wish they were a little more frequent. But friends, it's an utter gift of grace. I forget the name of this show, but you remember that show? They'd show up to people's homes with that massive check and the balloons, and the people, they just go ballistic. They just give this check to this person, and they're crying, and there's tears and joy and wonder. That's the metaphor of salvation, (laughs) When God lavishes his grace on us, do you see, it kills any sense of entitlement to God. We did nothing to earn him. It kills both entitlement and it kills any sense of control over God, where we can't say, well, God, look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've said. Look at all that I've poured out to you. Look at all that I've sacrificed. I mean, come on. There should be some measure of control over you, right, God? Look at all that I've done. It's all of grace. And if it's all of grace, we are not entitled to God. We are not controlling over God. We stand before him melted, floored, awestruck, in tears, in joy, in dependence, in love. It melts us to him. And it also melts us to one another. Because if it is all of grace, do you see very quickly, the idea of a superior or inferior Christian makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, if, we, if we look to our, the left and our right, and you guys, this is the human heart. We do this. Our default position of the human heart is to kind of look to the left and to the right and kind of compare ourselves, see how we're doing with God. Well, I'm not as good as that person, so I'm just going to avoid them. Oh, that person's not very good. It makes me kind of feel a little bit better, you know. And we do this. But grace kills that. It melts it because we all, we are all born into the family by utter and sheer grace. 
And if that is true, it melts us to God and others, and it produces in us what verses 2 and 3 show and exhibit. By this we know that we love the children of God. This, when it says by this, it's pointing backward to the first verse. That we believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We've been born of him. And everyone who loves the father loves who has been born of him. If we love the parent, we love the child. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Do we see all the way through 1 John? You've probably seen this over and over. And again, 1 John is kind of like a, a screw going deeper and deeper and deeper. You might have thought, well, haven't we heard a few messages about love of God and others? Yes, and John is drilling it deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. And he's saying this idea of loving God and loving others, it mutually authenticates each other. It mutually proves the love for the other. It mutually motivates and inspires the other. You can't have one without the other. If we love God, we love others. And one of the ways we show that by responding in love to God, by responding in love to others, and by keeping his commandments. Look at this, verse 3. For this is the love of God. If you ever wondered, how do I love God? Here it is. Keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And this is somewhat of a paradox, I think, for us as, as people. Uh, that the idea that the more we submit, the more we submit to God's desires, God's commands, God's teaching, God's instruction, the more we come under and constrain ourselves to his design for our life, ironically, the more free we are. It's somewhat counterintuitive. And the more right and good and biblical constraint that we submit ourselves to and under from God, the more free you as a person will be. And that makes complete and utter nonsense. It makes no sense to us. Uh, largely, I know I'm speaking to largely a, a Western audience. It makes no sense to us, right? Isn't freedom, isn't freedom complete removal of constraints? Isn't freedom the lessening of burdens? Isn't freedom the lifting of rules? Well, so how in the world, how, how could you say keeping his commandments is not burdensome? Come to me, all you weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. We say, Wait a second. Yoke and rest does not make any sense at all. <laughs> And on the one hand, absolutely, the gospel, grace, frees us utterly from death. It frees us utterly from the penalty of sin and condemnation and shame. It, 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 it frees us in many ways from, from the power of Satan. We, we used to be under the prince of the power of the air. As we looked earlier in 1 John, there's two family trees, either sons and daughters of the king or sons and daughters of the evil one. Grace frees us from Satan's power over our souls. There's a whole bunch of thing that, things that grace frees us from. But grace also frees us for. It frees us for God and for others. It frees us for that. Uh, 
um, Anglican uh, minister and theologian John Stott, many of you know that name very well, writes in the contemporary Christian, uh, listen to what he says as he comments on this idea, not only freedom from, but freedom for. He says, true love places constraints on the lover, for love is essentially self-giving, and this brings us to a startling Christian paradox. True freedom is freedom to be my true self as God made me and meant me to be. And God made me for loving. But loving is self-giving. Therefore, in order to be myself, I have to deny myself and give myself. In order to be free, I have to serve. In order to live, I have to die to my own self-centeredness. In order to find myself, I have to lose myself in loving. True freedom is, then, John Stott says, the exact opposite of what many people think. It's not being free from responsibility to God and others so I can live for myself. That is bondage to my own self-centeredness. Instead, Stott says, true freedom is freedom from my silly little self. You got to say that part with a British accent for it to make sense. Instead, true freedom is freedom from my silly little self so I can live responsibly in love for God and for others. Dear Christian, you are free from a lot of things. Condemnation, final ultimate judgment in a fearful sense. You are free from death. You are free from the penalty of sin, the power of Satan, but dear Christian, you are free for something as well. Free to serve God and free to love others. And do you want to know who knows this concept best? Professional athletes, professional artists, and anyone married for over two decades or above. You get the concept, right? Have you ever looked at a you know, professional athlete? How do they make it look so smooth? It just goes in every time. How do they make it so smooth? Have you ever tried this? Not so smooth. I get my swings worth when I golf. Not smooth at all. Ever wondered well, how, when someone paints or draws, how do they make it so beautiful? We attempt it. It looks like, kind of like a kindergarten you know, attempt. How do they make it so smooth? Thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of the right restraints and constraints on their life. Man, the pros agonize over every minute, infinitesimal detail so that they've submitted themselves for so long with so much diligence for the right constraints on their life. It just makes it look easy after a while. Those of you who've been married two decades or above, how, how is your marriage? Not perfect, sure, certainly. But how, do you, how, do you, how do you stay married for that long? Self-giving. Self-serving uh, the other. Giving of yourself. Dying to yourself. Putting the right constraints on your life so that you can serve others. And in an ironic sense, the more that you are free... And sin is the opposite. Oftentimes, sin paints itself as, as broad green pastures that we, can, that we can frolic freely amongst. 
But it's a trap. It constrains. It chokes out. It destroys. Is a lake trout more free 30 feet above Lake Michigan? Is a seagull more free 30 feet below Lake Michigan? Ironically, when we walk in righteousness, when we walk in God's design, when we walk according to his word, why, why does it say in the Psalms that the law is reviving to our souls? I delight to meditate on your law, says the psalmist. Why is that true? Because when we walk in God's design in righteousness according to his word, we are living according to our design and we are free. Is a train more free on or off its tracks? Is a Christian more free in or out of God's design and God's will? And my friends, grace, grace frees us for God, and it frees us for others. And there might be seasons of, of bondage or, or sin in your life that that which looked like it would be a freer path as you walk down that road, you realize it is anything but free. The chains are getting tighter the light is getting dimmer. The hope is lessening. Dear Christian, turn to grace. Turn to your Father who has birthed you again by His Spirit. Walk free. Free from and free for God and others. But of course, not only does grace, and this is the softening effect on our hearts, right? Meekness, humbleness, gentleness, it softens us toward God and others. But that's not the only thing that grace does. It doesn't just soften us, it strengthens us. That grace itself gives us courage. It gives us strength. It gives us might. It gives us confidence. It gives us power. It gives us a real kind of hope to face the world. It both softens us toward God and others, and it gives us a hope and a confidence and a strength to face the world. Look at verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here it is, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And appreciate this beautiful implication of this idea of overcome. <laughs> Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Who, it is, who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God? This word both sobers us and encourages us at the same time. If the world is big enough, dark enough, bad enough, that it needs to be overcome, that makes us humble, doesn't it? But if it has been overcome, it gives us confidence. And we see in this world that if the world has to be overcome, and you and I, dear Christian, if we try to storm the gates of hell, if we try to take on the forces of darkness without the author of light, do you know what we're going to look like? Spiritual chihuahuas. <laughs> no bite to back the bark. You want to take on the forces of darkness? God's Word says that the gates of hell will not be overcome. That, 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 that we are marching into a spiritual battle. And if you want to enter that battle without the God of the universe, the Lord of heaven's armies, the author of light, we're going to look foolish 
The forces of darkness and evil will say, well, it's a nice show, but move along. The world is, is, it needs to be overcome. And again, the world is this idea. Biblically, as John writes it both in his letters and in the gospel, the world is, is humanity in rejection of God, humanity in rebellion against God. The world is the realm in which sin and evil pervade. It's the realm in which Satan has dominion over. When you read the word world in 1 John and in John's gospel, don't think of humanity at its best. Think of humanity at its brokenness, at its worst. Don't think of hands held together singing kumbaya. Think of fists clenched, shaking at God in rebellion against him. This is what it means when it's talking about the world. And if the world is going to be overcome, dear Christians, we cannot go in alone. You and I have no might, no power, no strength, no resources in and of ourselves. We're going to look foolish to the forces of darkness. We need the author of light. But this is what's so beautiful about this idea. If the world is broken enough that it needs to be overcome, if sin and evil and depravity has such a grasp on a world broken that it has to be overcome, that humbles us. But look at this. Look at this. It has been overcome. And if it has been overcome, and if, if you have the author of light by your side, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you have the God of the universe that speaks and stars come into existence, if he is by your side, and dear Christian, if you don't storm the gates of hell, then do you know what we're going to look like? Turtles. With, with our heads in our shell, we're going to look like Eeyore's. We've got God himself by our side, and he's saying that you have overcome your faith, your faith in Christ, that if he is the one who has overcome, and he says, let's charge, and we say, I don't know, Eeyore, are you sure we're going to win? It looks pretty dark out there. Do you not know who's standing right by your side, dear Christian? Do you not realize the power of, of God? Do you not see his might? He is inexhaustible, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly wise, mighty, strong, creates and destroys by the word of his mouth ultimately creative and has designed all things, uh, sovereign over everything, and he is by your side, by faith in Jesus Christ. God's family, God's kingdom, melts our inner Eeyore. He gives us courage when we want to put our heads back in our shell. When we say, I don't know, there's, there's brokenness out there, there's darkness, there's sin that has pervaded deeply, and I'm afraid. God says, I know you are, and I'm right here with you. And this, this is something that we have to hold on to. This is something we have to hold on to, because it both helps us combat either defeatism 
and discouragement or naivete. We can't charge in our, on our own resources. We need God. Yet at the same time, why defeated, dear brother and sister in Christ? Why, when you look out and see all the winds of the battles that the forces of darkness have had, are having, will have, why does that take the wind out of our sails? If we remember that the world needs to be overcome and it has been overcome, it humbles and encourages at the same time. At the same time. One of the things that I love and continue to love, and one of the things that, as Sally and I, many of you know, uh, when in our candidating process for this position, uh, one of the things that we appreciated so much and so greatly is that Village Church is a multi-generational church. That's a beautiful thing, and that's, that's, that's not true everywhere. That's a gift of God's grace and a testimony to faithful work by many people over many decades. We are blessed to be a part of that. But one of the things I love so much about that is there's a mutual sharpening effect. There's a, having multiple generations in the same place, in the same family, helps each other out. Those of you who, who would consider yourself, notice how I'm letting you decide this, those of you who would consider yourself older generations, I'll let you guys decide if that's you or if that's not you, You've had more time just by the nature of your birthday, whatever that may be or may not be. You've had more time firsthand to observe spiritual decay in your lifetime. The forces of darkness have won battles. And if you're older, just by the nature of your life stage, you've been able to observe that firsthand for a longer period of time. Over time, that can be discouraging. Over time, that can be deflating. Over time, that can make you wonder at times, is God really on the throne? Is, is the war going to be won, the spiritual war? And sometimes, uh, a heart of... Either, either cynicism or defeatism or discouragement can overwhelm. You've seen more. You've seen more. Uh, those of you who would consider yourself amongst the younger generations, we all put ourselves in you, whatever that is. Whatever, those of you who consider yourself in the younger generations, there is a naivete that we can bring, isn't there? there there's a way that we can charge in, and, and if, if we forget, if we forget that it's not our energy, it's not our wisdom, it's not our resources, it's God's energy, God's wisdom, God's resource, we're going to be naive. We're going to be naive to the reality of the brokenness and fallenness of the world. And here's why generations, young or old, we need each other. We need each other to see those blind spots and to encourage one another, to remind each other, to apply the truths of the gospel and apply the truths of God's word in such a way that we build each other up. And we need this. We need this for one another as we carry on in our Christian life. Many of you also know um, I grew up as a child in northern Minnesota, northern Minnesota, and we would always, you could always spot someone who was new to northern Minnesota by how they walked on a frozen lake. <laughs> and there was kind of, you know, there, 
kind of a timidity and, you know, hand on the ground. And before you know it, you, you know, they're, they're face flat on the ice. Meanwhile, the local teenagers behind them who stole their dad's F-150 are doing donuts on the ice with their truck. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question. Is it wrong to be afraid of the icy, cold waters of a broken, fallen world that reside below the ice? Is it wrong to be afraid of that? No. No, it is not. You have to respect, you have to respect the harshness of the cold waters that reside under the ice. But at the same time, dear Christian, do we need to fear that in a way that gives way to defeatism? Do we need to fear that in a way that cripples us? Absolutely not. Why? Because in Christ, you are standing on thick ice. In Christ, you have a foundation that's sure enough, strong enough, it will hold the weight. And when you walk out onto the promises of God, you will stand and you will be firm, and you will rest on His promises. Some of you might know, some of you might remember, you remember the, the hymn, Standing on the Promises of God? Some of you might know that. Do you know what it's not called? Creeping on the Promises of God. Do you know what the lyrics are not? Creeping on the promises, I just might fall. Worrying every moment will the Spirit call. Doubting in my Savior as my all in all, you know, creeping on the promises of God. And we're walking through the Christian life as if the God of the universe isn't right beside us. The lyrics are standing on His promises, standing on the promises. I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, trusting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. There are two equal and opposite dangers, right? We walk out under the foundation of Christ, and if we're kind of creeping, forgetting that God is right beside us, we've given way to defeatism. We've given way to fear. We've given way to, to cynicism. We've forgotten that though there will be battles won and lost in this life, the war is won. The ending is finalized. Our king will win. So, dear Christian, stand. Stand. Stand on the promises. Do not give way to defeatism. Do not give way to fear. Stand on his promises. There's an equal and opposite fear. We also can't waltz out assuming that it's all in our strength and all in our resources, all up to us, that we can take on the forces of darkness by ourselves. No, no, no. You have to stand on Christ. And if you have seen and appreciated the nuance of all the ways that sin and depravity and brokenness have infected and pervaded society and life, my friends, we are on the other side of Genesis 3. We live in a broken world. And some of you have seen that and observed that for decades. Fear not. Your God is with you. Do not be dismayed. Do not lose heart. Carry on, O oh Christian. 
onward Christian soldiers because we stand on Christ. And we see simultaneously, and here's the paradox, right? This is all made true. We can have this confidence because of grace that softens us toward God and others. It melts our heart and it gives us the courage of a lion. Not because we're so strong, but because he's so strong. So, dear Christian, may God produce in you that soft yet firm, that meek yet courageous, that gentle and kind and humble and patient, yet resolute, unwavering, unshakable faith that only comes from Christ. Let's pray. Father, we live in a time when we need both of these things. And Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would help give us thick skin without a hard heart. Lord, help us to have a, a soft and tender heart without a brutal, hard outer shell. Father, we need this. We ask that you would produce this in us. And Lord, I just pray for all of those who are listening to this message today, wherever they are, whatever they're struggling through. Lord, may you soften those who need to be softened. And Father, may you give us strength to those who need courage. That as we navigate this life in this world, we would see that yours is the victory. And that we would praise and sing hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney. Or go to www.bcgurney.org.